what's up and welcome back to nostalgia pod giving you your weekly look at what's going on in pop culture my name is pat sheen joined by my trusty co-host in the force dave martin swagger dave what's going on grogu <laughs> oh man he lived bitch suck it anakin oh this is mean some great memes after this most recent Mando episode more so yeah. than normal uh definitely a uh, jam-packed episode um, and we wanted to talk about it quick at the top today. We also have a couple of movies and TV shows as well as a pretty uh, great album, in my opinion, that we'll be talking about. Um, and if you want to hear all of it, hit that subscribe button, soundcloud.com slash nostalgiapod, youtube.com slash nostalgiapod. But back to The Mandalorian. Dave, we got our first look at a big casting of Rosario Dawson as Ahsoka Tano. And I'm wondering, because you are much more tuned into the uh, spin-off shows of Star Wars, Rebels, and, and the like. Did you like Rosario Dawson's portrayal of Ahsoka? Oh, yeah, yeah. I thought she was good. Uh, I was never really too concerned about the performance angle of it. I mean, notably, uh, Ashley Eckstein was the voice of the character on Clone Wars and Rebels, whereas Katie Sackhoff was the voice of Bo-Katan, as well as playing her in The Mandalorian. So this was a recasting for the live-action show. Um, but I was never really that concerned about it just because you're casting a good, accomplished actor who has a lot of range in Rosario. And I thought she was great. And uh, more importantly, I think the episode uh, highlighted what makes her an important character, whether you're new to her or not, while still being a normal, familiar episode of The Mandalorian as a, within a piece of the greater season. So. Yeah, uh, happy to see Ahsoka. Well, remains to be seen how much more we get in Mandalorian Season 2, but I thought it was a lovely episode. Yeah, I thought it was a great episode. I imagine we might possibly see her again near the end of the season. Um, you know, uh, you have to imagine that uh, Baby Yoda will be put at the top of the Jedi Tower, and he will hopefully be making his choice. I imagine that might be a cliffhanger, potentially. Um and I just noticed I just called him Baby Yoda again. I'm so accustomed to it. What do you think of Grogu as the name? It sounds like a Star Wars name to me. I mean, why not? I saw okay. I saw it's some backlash. People. Yeah, I mean, like I don't him. understand that though. Like, obviously, he has a fucking name. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was just. You could call him Baby Yoda. It doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you you definitely can, and uh, I certainly will. Um, but I have to say, I, I thought the name was great. I, uh, you know, especially because if you think about Yoda and that name, I mean, yeah. you, you got so many places you can go with this. You can go grow. You can go goo, goo, goo. Yeah. I mean, come on. Sure. Nicknames are all there. Just I mean, like a lot of other one uh, one word Star Wars names ending in vowels. It sounds good. It rolls off the tongue. Jabba, Wado, Django, Boba. Wado. There's so many. Honey. It sounds like a Star Wars name. It's, <laughs> it's all good. Uh, yeah. Man- Mandalorian continues to be. Much watch, much much talk, must watch, must talk about t- television. Um, I I think as we get to list time, which will be coming in just a few weeks here, kind of crazy. Happy uh, Happy December, Dave. Um, Mandalorian's gonna be interesting where that falls on these lists. That's true. My top ten is is, is tight. Yeah, it's, it's really it's... tight right now. I, I I'm that, that's the one list I maintain over over the year, mm-hmm. or TV and movies anyway, not music. And like the TV list, as like things come out, like when Queen's Gambit co- came out, I was like, "Oh, oh, well, this is in." So what's mm-hmm. out? Shit, something's out now. Like it's <laughs> been a loaded year. 
yeah, it, we might have to go top 15 this year just to <laughs> blow it out. We'll see. Um, but anyways, why don't we get to some music and anyone that's watching on YouTube can see the background to Dave, which is Plastic Hearts by Miley Cyrus, the newest album. You know, uh, we, we've talked about Miley a little bit since the podcast started, you know, a uh, couple of years back, we got, uh, what was that uh, EP collection? She is coming. That was last year. That was just last year. Last oh, spring. It feels, yeah. it feels like two or three years ago at this point, but that's 2020 for you, I guess. What was supposed to be like a, a series of EPs leading to this She Is Miley Cyrus album that was ultimately scrapped, and there might be some pieces of that on Plastic Hearts, but it feels like it, this is more or less something new. Yeah, and I think we liked some of what was off that album. You know, yeah. she had songs like Dream, Mother's Daughter, um, you know, so, some good stuff on there, and... It felt like Miley was maybe moving in the right direction music wise. You know, her, her her career's had a lot of ups and downs, I feel like. Yeah, well, I mean, genre wise, she's kind of been all over the place, right? Like since since leaving Hannah Montana behind like nine years ago, you have like Bangers, which was I think her most commercially viable, her most popular, and which is, you know, largely like big pop focus. But then she kinda like course corrected a few years back with that younger now, like country record that didn't really land. And then you get that she is com- or the she is coming EP songs you mentioned. I also really liked Unholy on that. I think that was more or less lending itself to what was good about Bangers. And then even later on last year, a solo single Slide Away, which I thought was excellent, made my top ten. Her um, VMAs performance of that live is tremendous. Honestly, better than the recording in my opinion. And you, I mean, like it's been abundantly clear for a while that Miley Cyrus is a very talented vocalist and performer. And just question of what kind of music she's going to be making. And Plastic Hearts is definitely new stuff once again, because it's more throwback. But unlike, uh, it, it, it's certainly 1980s once again, like a lot of pop, but it's not actually really 80s disco so much as it's like 80s new wave. You know, it, it's a little different than the usual 80s throwbacks we've experienced of late in pop music. You know, Dave, I had a funny experience this morning where I was listening to a... Uh country holiday song just happened to come on a playlist i was listening to and i was like oh this guy has the most country voice ever right like his voice you you know what i'm talking about you can almost hear it as i'm I'm talking about luke combs yeah and it's kind of the same thing for females when they sing countries i feel like there's a lot of female vocalists who have a similar style with country and miley never really quite fit that but that was the mold she was in as billy ray cyrus's daughter you know this music this country music legend um, and she came up as Hannah Montana, who was like country rock and yeah. but always had like that pop twist to it. And then she comes out and she has a couple records and she's going more and more pop and that kind of culminates with bangers. Right. And at that point, you're like, OK, Miley's a pop star, as you just kind of detailed, there's some twists and turns. But she always had the voice, I think, that fit more for that rock sound. And I think this album is where she really starts to find the the sonic uh, s- style that really fits with those vocals and what it's always kind of been has been that like 80s rock female rock uh, yeah. I guess always kind of just like hiding in plain sight for her it seems yeah I mean you think to uh recent single uh, single off plastic hearts midnight sky which mm-hmm. has been rapturously received notably interpolates edge of 17 by stevie nicks you get a mm-hmm. kind of remix uh, mashup of sorts between the two songs as well on this album you hear that 
and then you look on this album and you see that Joan Jett is also mm-hmm. featured. You're like, all right, you can definitely tell wh- what Miley is into right now. Yeah. And because, you know, she has like a certain, she's, she's a talented vocalist, a strong vocalist, but she has a certain like rasp to her voice. Mm-hmm. Like there's like a, just an edge, a natural edge to the way she yeah. sings that it, I think it lends itself genuinely to making this kind of music. And that definitely comes across in, on Plastic Hearts. Yeah, I mean, even, you know, you talked about the uh, mashup remix of Midnight Sky with Edge of 17. And it's just so clear that she's made in almost the same exact mold as Stevie. You know, I think Stevie's voice was a little more smooth than Miley's. But Miley, like you talked about, that rasp is so unique and uh, really lends itself to uh, creating this like bite to these songs. And it, it really is in the style of someone like Joan Jett or, you know, she covers Heart of Glass by Blondie on this, which I don't know if Blondie's a little more glitzy and glam, but then you, she covers the Cranberry Zombie and that might be my favorite song on the record. She just absolutely destroys it. And it's like, this is always, it feels like who Miley was meant to be and probably not who she's always going to stay as, but it seems like this is the the comfort zone for her where she just absolutely slays it. Yeah, definitely. She's done rock covers in the past too, and they've always been well received. And I think, that's really just because she's really talented performer. I'd like to see her do a tiny desk, to be honest, for MPR. Yeah. I think she could do really great there. Um, but, I mean, I think Midnight Sky is going to remain probably the most popular song on this, which is a big highlight for a lot of people. Um, but, like, I think, like, the first track, what, what WTF do I know? What the fuck do I know? That song, like, the rasp, if you wanted to hear that Miley rasp, that's it right there. And, like, you hear this in, like, the 80s. 80s rock if at all that that's kind of it and then uh right after the duo song you get give me what i want that's another good example of that um how'd you how'd you feel about billy idol's feature on this again makes sense when you think about the stevie and joan jett uh being on the mind of late what do you think about billy idol like i I definitely have not heard him recently (laughs) uh yeah i don't think many people have and uh, it was fine i mean I wouldn't consider myself the biggest Billy Idol fan. I think he was a bit before uh, my, my He's time. He's got those hits I like. That's all I really right. know. I mean, anytime I hear him sing, I just go right back to uh, White Wedding, you know? It's like, <laughs> uh, just give it to me. But um, I don't know. I I, I think the, the songs I, I jive with most on here are probably in the first half. But I think Miley really played to her strengths on this album because as she was kind of falling into this 80s rock genre zone on the first half, I think she really goes to a more like stripped back acoustic side in the second half with a couple of really solid songs. I mean, um, High, it sounds very much in the same ilk of The Climb, which I think is also a lane that Miley does really well, these like rock, soft rock ballads. And you get kind of a similar thing on golden g-string uh, which is a little bit more glitzy and glam it kind of reminds me of high horse a little bit by casey musgraves mm. in terms of style but really i think miley was like i can do rock on this like rock pop or i can go to like ballad rock on this and then yeah. and she kills it and I, I just love that it feels like through all the shit she's been through over the last year in her personal life and just kind of all the the tabloid um you know fodder she's received it seems like she's kind of to the fires last year yeah it seems like she's really found herself within a year of of you know tumult so um it's it's really nice to see her elevating in this way um what 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 other tracks stood out to you any that you liked in particular how did you feel about the duo song yeah so that one's funny to me because that's probably the only example where it's more lean towards the 80s disco stuff 
And it, to me, it almost feels a little bit out of place in the context of the album. And that's probably because like it, it, it it's good. I like listening to it, but it doesn't come close to any like the really good stuff on Dua's album. So it, it just kind of feels a little lesser to me. Um, yeah. And it, it, it feels a little uh, commercial, like it's on the album because it'll be successful because it's featuring Dua Lipa. It doesn't really make much sense for the rest of the sound. But that's fine. I still like the song. Yeah, I, I thought it was a good song, but probably not one of my favorites. You know, you mentioned Midnight Sky. I think Plastic Hearts and um, also What the Fuck Do I Know, the first track, are probably my, my top three originals. And then, like I said, Zombie is uh, maybe my favorite song on here. Just she, she absolutely slays it. Any last thoughts on Miley as we start to wrap up here? Uh, I hope this does well for her, you know, because when she course corrected to the country again with younger now that did not do that well. And, you know, you know, we know Miley as a celebrity is, is sound. I just hope she can become a successful commercial artist because this is funny enough. This is album seven for Miley Cyrus. She's 28. You know, it's uh, she's been very active. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Dave, um, I'm, I'm going to pass you the ball here because while we, we slave away to bring as much content as we can, I was not able to get to industry this week, which just so happened to drop its last, what, five episodes out of the clouds? So, exactly. Industry HBO, on HBO, hashtag Industry HBO, uh, came out of nowhere being like, hey, you know, we're going to drop the last five episodes on HBO Max. We'll still be running each episode week to week, you know, native premium cable programming on HBO, if you like. But the whole thing's on HBO Max, and I guess their reasoning makes a little sense. So I just justify uh, or um, amplify viewership during the holiday weekend. I get it, I guess. But yeah, it was unplanned for us to have to finish industry all of a sudden. Right. But I uh, went through all eight episodes in total. The, the remaining five that just came out, you know, took those right at the nose, like uh, many other characters were putting things up their nose throughout the run of the season. And, it's, uh, you know, if you look back on our review, we talked about the first two episodes when they came out. I don't think a whole lot's changed about my thoughts about the show, having seen the first season. It's, uh, it very much uh, is what you get. And I feel like if you like it, if you're hooked from the beginning, you'll probably still be satisfied at the end. Uh, you know, the Mickey Down, Conrad K, former finance bankers turned first-time showrunners with the help from Lena Dunham. It, it feels genuine as a show about investment banking in the high stakes, high stress, uh, ang anxious world that that is, especially for uh, newcomers to the field, which is who we focus on, you know, and uh, Harper remains our main POV, but we stick around with Robert and Yasmin throughout that whole season. And what I really liked from the beginning is uh, stuck stuck through. You know, it has a really rhythmic tension to it. It uh, doesn't hold your hand about tons of financial jargon that sounds sounds like it's real and, and accurate, but it's you don't actually know unless you're a fin finance pro. But the point that isn't the point. The point is that uh, thematically, that tension makes sense, and you understand the stakes of what uh, these characters are going through, even if you know. The types of trades they're they're processing don't actually make a lot of sense if that's not your world, you know. Um, and I think you know the arc we, we kind of knew what the arc was going to be right. These these new graduates at this firm, Pure Pure Point, they're 
building up until the RIF happens, the reduction in force, when they have to prove that they're uh, worthy of sticking around and being uh, given full-time positions, right? And so, like, it, it's a it's a very straightforward season in that regard, but I I still really, I really like the energy the whole time. You know, you, you were watching, I think, a lot, a lot of good performers, most of which I'd never seen before. Uh, yeah, I think give good performances. They keep, Again, the themes are really well communicated. There's a lot of sex. There's a lot of drugs. It seems like they're having a lot of fun, and even when they're not having fun, they're having a hard time. It, it, it always uh, feels earned, and like it's still hard to look away from. So definitely hoping they uh, commission a second season of industry on HBO. We have no formal word one way or the other at this time, but I really like, I really like the run. And, you know, I think there's, there's a, there's a scene probably in episode three or four where Ted Leung's Eric and Harper are talking and, you know, that, that relationship as Harper's become under the wing of Eric, who's a kind of runs that desk at the firm and, he, he kind of highlights why he uh, is taking time out to like mentor Harper. And obviously it starts with her talent, which, which is, which is exemplified early on the show, but he also kind of gets into the, uh, what, I, what I was hoping the show would touch on, which is the, the, the struggle and the pressure that both of them feel as minorities in a workplace setting like this. And that conversation uh, comes back up in a different way towards the end of the season. And you, you know, you, you see the tension with Harper, right? Where it's like, you have this, this, this character who's put, put, put uh, his neck out for her in a certain stretch, but also is uh, certainly not without his flaws in the workplace and having to uh, juggle something like that. And ultimately having to decide where one's loyalties lie. Um, you know, it's, where, where the show ends, I think is, really ripe for uh, a potential second season. So I really hope we do get it. I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to finishing them. My goal is to finish them by the end of the week. Maybe uh, next week or later on this week, we'll do a, a spoiler review of the industry. Bump. It's uh, definitely a show that's surprised. And um, yeah, uh, I'm, it sounds like a perfect kind of HBO show, you know, in terms of uh, you mentioned like all the, like the sex drugs, like stuff that you wouldn't see on regular cable television, but really having that like solid writing and like just really like fun pace throughout is such a staple of them now. Yep. Absolutely. Why don't we move on to another HBO show that wrapped up though? The undoing, uh, the mini series starring Nicole Kidman, Hugh Grant, Donald Sutherland. Um, yeah. Suddenly got really popular all of a sudden. Like I didn't, I hadn't Blew talked up. about it with many people and all of a sudden everyone's watching it. <laughs> yeah. I think the, uh, I think the holiday allowed people to really start catching up on things. And mm-hmm. it seems like the reaction was, Oh shit, that the ending of that episode of the undoing and insert any episode that you want to, because uh, the show yeah. had a knack for leaving you with some great cliffhangers. Um, you know, I, I, I think there's a little bit to talk about here, a little bit on this bone, so to speak. Um, maybe the first place to start is, do you feel satisfied with this season? It's a great question. Because I generally enjoyed watching it more often than not, and that's probably because of like the way they manufactured tension with cliffhangers and Mister X and red herrings and all that. So I was always interested in seeing the plot continue, right? But I think it's a bad finale 
mm. and an unsatisfying result in terms of the, the resolution of the plot. So I find the overall, the whole series is definitely colored by that. I think it's a disappointing run, but I enjoyed watching it. I'm so happy. I happy I gave it a shot, obviously. Yeah. I, I think that's something to really pick apart. And I was left with a similar feeling at first, right? I think when, when the series wraps up and this is going to be a spoiler review. So if you don't want to be spoiled, you haven't finished yet. Just come back when you've watched um you know when it, when it turns out to just be Hugh Grant in the end I was like ah you know all this misdirect all this what if to really just be him from start to finish but then I thought about the name of the show right the undoing and it was yeah. always more about I think Nicole Kidman's journey of undoing from this you know psychopath in a sense uh, and the, the book it's adapted off his name to you should have known same right. thing right and um you know the the moment that really stuck out to me in, in the finale and that left me actually feeling differently about it at, at the end was when she asked the son, like, do you want the family to get back together? And he just is like through teary eyes, like, do you want that? And like mm. really like pushes her to answer the question. Cause then it, it, that reframed my expectations of what the show is actually trying to do. And uh, I think when Nicole Kidman goes on the stand and pretty much sabotages her own husband's you know, trial, then I was like, oh, okay, so this is what the show is really about from start to finish. Instead of it being this procedural, like, whodunit, which was captivating, it was really more about Nicole Kidman's inner journey, which I don't know if that was portrayed effectively yeah. enough. Maybe on a second watch it kind would be. Flipped. But um, I think when, when I was looking at it through one lens and it should have been the other, I was like, hmm, maybe there's right. something to, to be said there. Yeah, ultimately the twist is that there is no twist. I think that's immediately like like a, sh a shocking development to a lot of people, right? But to me, I'm almost more disappointed about because it became more procedural. Like right. when the show started, and I was like, oh, this is David E. Kelly and Nicole Kidman reuniting once again for HBO. And, you know, we're watching these ritzy, wealthy people this time on the on the East Coast. And, and there's still those clicky uh social circles among the adults like big little lies and i'm like huh but all, all of that that kind of window dressing really fell fell apart Quickly. and the show became really straightforward as just a procedural thing as we're leading into the legal proceedings mm -hmm. and um that was a little, just a little less fun to me apart from the like cliffhanger moments right like i'm always wondering like oh what's the deal with lily rave's character what's the deal with donald sutherland and it's like I don't know, like, Lily Rabe's whole thing at the end is that she, like, gives the prosecutor that info that Kidman told her on the phone about her husband being a psychopath due yeah, to information narcissist. she learned from her mother-in-law. And it's like, I mean, I guess. I, I'm actually not sure how that's, like, admissible evidence. Like legal wise, I was kind of surprised we we walked right over that. Like that she can just cite that as something she knows as the prosecutor. I'm like, wait, what the fuck? Why? How do you know her private phone call? Why did no one question this? Anyway, <laughs> well, uh, the um, the attorney for them, the the defending attorney, uh, I forgot her name. Yeah, um, she was really uh, screaming there at the end, and the judge is just like, sit your ass down, <laughs> like. <laughs> We're we're admitting it. It's this is all admissible, yeah. uh, man. I I think there was a lot of really great moments though um, throughout that I go back to, and 
I, I think the one thing I was really left with in terms of those great moments was just at different points, I thought pretty much everybody had done it. Like I was convinced at one point that Donald Sutherland had actually killed this woman and like framed Hugh Grant. And I was like, there we go. This was it the whole time, Donald Sutherland. And no, it wasn't. And then when you find the hammer in the son's bag, it's like, did the son, or in the other case, did the son potentially do it? And I thought they did a good job of the, the misdirect. Yeah, I had my eyes on on Noah Jupe, the son, for a minute, just because he the energy he was bringing is like kind of creeping in on conversations and looking yeah. through cracks in the doors and stuff. And I'm like, something's up with this. And then they kind of drop the hammer thing too early, like it's at the end of the fifth episode. And I'm like, all right, well, the, the kid didn't do it the way through five episodes. It's kind of clear the kid didn't do it. So how are you doing this? Like, I, I think for me. I was always able to theorize, and I feel like everyone who watched the show was able to theorize. You go online, and you saw everyone, what everyone was saying. But the show, I don't know if it actually was giving compelling alternatives to it being Hugh Grant. And like Nicole Kidman, we saw the footage of her on her on her weird ass walks at night, and it's like, huh? But you're telling us this in like the third episode. I, I had a hard time like uh, latching on to any one theory. I was just kind of expecting something to be different. Yeah. But that's what the twist ultimately was. That it was actually Hugh. And I mean, how did you feel about the end when he, he, he seemed to kind of get a lot more manic at the end when he became more desperate. Yeah. And I, I thought that made sense. Um, you yeah. know, it, it, it was, uh, it was kind of funny. Cause I was like, this is probably with someone who has a personality disorder like this. And, you know, is also a psych- psychopath and lacks empathy in this way when they finally are getting caught and exposed would probably do. So uh, I thought it made a lot, of se- a lot of sense. I just thought it was like incredibly dramatic. I didn't understand why the, the son went with him to begin with. It's like, you know, you, you're convinced your dad's the killer, but you're like, let's just go for a joyride. Uh, Last time we can do this, dad. Yeah. <laughs> Breakfast. This is it. Oh, Papa. Um, uh, you know, uh, more, uh, I'm a little more interested to hear your thoughts on how did you feel about the performances? You know, uh, Hugh Grant, we've seen in a number of different roles, uh, you know, as an aging, uh, male act- actor, not a leading man anymore in Hollywood, Nicole Kidman, we've seen quite a few things recently. Do you feel like they were strong? How, what was your temperature? The, the Kidman stuff isn't that different with, with what she's been doing of late. This is kind of a, she has a few molds right now. One is just kind of like the caring mother figure, which we've got in like Lion and the Goldfinch. Then you have the character who's going through like mental thing, men, men, mental gymnastics, like being a little wise, like the undoing. And then you have like kind of one-off things where she actually does something with transformative, like Destroyer. But yeah. like, it's really just those other two molds for the most part for like late period Kidman. And I guess in that that sense, it's not that different from what I've seen of late. Mm-hmm. But I thought it was fine. I thought it was um, she was good. I, I think any problems with the the character is more to do with the writing and the plotting than her performance. Yeah, I agree. Um, I actually thought Hugh Grant was really great, though. Yeah, um, like I think he's the best part of it for sure. Yeah, and I mean, I think his part lends itself to be when you're basically playing like a a double, you know, role. Uh, this complete psychopath who also, you know, like most narcissist is incredibly charming and 
convincing in a lot of ways. So uh, I, I thought he was great um, and had a lot of fun stuff to do. Donald Sutherland, you know, kind of again in his same role. He's basically just the uh, the president from Hunger Games all the time now, which is interesting. <laughs> president I, Snow. <laughs> I guess th- th- this was like a softer side of President Snow we saw this yeah. time, but I mean. He, I liked him in Burnt Orange Heresy. That was a little different, right? True. That's but true. Like you're right, though. Most this is kind of he's kind of collecting the bag, doing this kind of stuff. Like Get, I, that was another thing too. It's like you have Edgar Ramirez as this NYPD detective. You have Donald Sutherland as the the, the father, the grandfather, the father-in-law. There are really nothing parts of you in the day. Yeah. yeah, Edgar Ramirez just gets to be like incredulous on the stand, and that's like his big moment. And I don't know. I, it just felt like there was so much more that was going to happen there um you know as as we wrap up don't want to see a sequel uh i think just leave this as what it is um you know i guess like an anthology maybe if if they want to go with something like that but that's fine uh, david e kelly has enough uh you know cakes in the oven at this point same thing with kidman who's very active so i i don't think they're gonna bring it back it l- looks like it was a, a big hit there's no need to go back to the well at this point just do something new yeah, just give me more uh, Nicole Kidman destroyer type roles. I want to see her Please. getting weird. Uh, why don't we move on, though, to a uh, another anthology-esque, I'll say, series, because that we, sure. we might be shifting with that. We'll talk about that in a second. But Fargo season four also wrapped up this past Sunday. We talked about the first uh, couple episodes, which were uh, dropped on FX and FX on Hulu. I think we can say Noah Hawley is in complete command when he's behind the the camera mm-hmm. for Fargo. You know, we we can't say that for all of his uh all of his films and TV shows, but Fargo he has an act for, right? And I think season 4 is is kind of in line with that where this was a really really strong season of television, you know, a lot of the same beats from past seasons, uh, you know, tying threads together, having characters pop in and out and be really memorable and have some really memorable scenes i think for me though what made this season fall a bit short from other fargo seasons was the the two main leads of chris rock and jason schwartzman just did not convince me of their roles and miscast yeah and I, i think that left me feeling uh just a bit out of it uh, not totally as sucked in as I could have been. I saw you shaking your head. It seems like you probably run on the same page there. Yeah, it, it's funny because I genu- generally enjoyed the season, Fargo season mm-hmm. four. But what for whatever reason, there, there's just some obvious flaws and mistakes that really stand out to me. Uh, and one of them, maybe the, the chief among them would be, yeah, Jason Schwartzman and Chris Rock. I think Schwartzman especially were just miscast and not effective performers for these characters for fada and canon and i think rock was fine when he was pontificating when he was speechifying but a lot of times when he was with other authors you could just tell that his you know he's not actually a dramatic actor yeah first obviously we all know that you could tell he was just kind of outclassed when he was canon was with like say dr senator or something and yeah. schwartzman was more about just the energy he was bringing as a as a performer just didn't feel authentic to the character he was supposed to be portraying. Like the, the fall from grace that happens at the end for, for him made plenty of sense, but I actually never understood why he 
commanded any respect or power from the jump. He just did not feel like the, and I'm sure that was kind of the point. That was what the character was, but it was just a little off, like in terms of the energy Schwartzman was bringing. And like, I, I was happy to see him try something new, but I don't think he was a good choice in the end. Yeah, with Schwartzman, you know, I kept thinking about the clothes he wore, right? And it, he always was wearing these, like, almost oversized type, like, suits and, like, coats. And <laughs> I think that was probably a uh, a visual decision to, like, make him almost look like he didn't fit the role in a lot of senses. You know, while all these other Italian gangsters had these very uh, fine and, like, well-cut suits. And, you know, he was, he like you said, he just didn't fit. But I also feel like Schwartzman just uh, something... I guess I've never really been a huge Jason Schwartzman fan. Uh, now that I think about it, you know, he's, I mostly know him from the Wes Anderson films and, um, you know, he's hit or miss in those for me, but uh, it just felt like, uh, like it, they, they took a swing with these castings and they didn't totally hit rock. I, I agree. I was a little more on board with, and depending on who he was in the scene with, I think he held his own. But like you said, when he was in the same scene as like Glenn, Glenn Turman, it's like, yeah, it's no, no comparison you know no. and and actually that was what probably the biggest loss of the season for me was dr senator because yeah i mean first of all his his death that whole scene is incredibly well done dramatic uh his final speech is just so biting and like such an awesome way for the character to go out but then i was like oh we don't get any more dr senator anymore like this yeah. sucks <laughs> yeah and that that kind of leads me to one of the other not- notable flaws is this actually was probably the first time fargo felt less tight uh, mm-hmm. in terms of the, the plotting and it's notable because when the when the virus happened and they they stopped just short of finishing the season before they had to shut down production holly successfully campaigned to recut the episodes and kind of frankenstein an 11th episode uh, on to the end of the season so as a result the middle chapters kind of felt less straightforward like there was more flashbacks there, there just there was almost more fluff i guess you could say and i think the other part of this is that there's a lot of characters in this i think there's actually too many characters mm. in fargo season four like at the end of the day timothy oliphant's duffy is a really minor character in in for the season and and almost casting Oliphant doing the Raylan Givens doing what he just did in Mandalorian like mm-hmm. doing his Oliphant stuff is almost distracting because it's not actually a consequential part right. similarly um the, the two two women who break out of prison uh hmm. what was her name Shawnee and then the sister of uh yeah you know, like, um, ro- ro- rocks uh, Zelmer sister I guess they again ultimately not actually that important. I like I like the performances usually, but like it, it it felt like the plot was just a little a little a little thick. And like as it started to wrap up at the end, I, I was getting more on board. But those middle chapters felt uh, unnecessary fat unnecessarily fat to me. Yeah, and I think the thing about most seasons of Fargo is that that middle of the season always feels kind of like where are we going? Like where is this going to end up? Um, and I think this season, I just, like you said, with that, that fatness, I, I think I felt a little bit more lost at times, whereas the other ones, I'm like, I'm just along for the ride. I'm just enjoying this. Um, you know, I, I did think there were some really awesome standout performances in this. So for people you wouldn't expect, like um, Emma Marie Crutchfield as Ethel, Ethel Rida, um, the, the teenager, the black teenager who exposes Jesse Buckley's um, 
nurse. I thought she was great. Um, and I, I really liked the scenes uh, between her, her characters at the Ethelrida and Cannon's uh, older son, you know, um, and then kind of how that kind of came to fruition with her delivering this ring or uh, that, that, that could end the war. Like there or I, I just thought that was really like interesting kind of out of nowhere, but I, I really liked her performance. Um, I also really like the performance of Ben Wishaw in this. And I'm not saying I wouldn't expect him to be really good, but just a character who at the beginning I kind of felt like was going to be like a nothing and ended up being probably my favorite of the season, honestly. Yeah, Wishaw was great as Rabbi Milliken. Milligan, ultimately underused. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's not in it as much as you'd like. <laughs> and of course it's notable, like probably the second or third time I heard the name, I was like, Milligan. Huh. Got this black son separated. Huh. Wonder if that's Mike Milligan from season two. And mm. it becomes incredibly obvious by like episode five. Like, oh yeah, there's yeah. Mike Milligan. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, like, is it an effective origin story for Mike Milligan? I don't even know, to be honest, because like there's this, there's a huge gap still in between Satchel becoming Oki and Woodbine. Mm-hmm. But it was kind of a cool like, Easter egg because how like Fargo seasons one, two, and four are quite well connected at this point you know and and that's just fun fun to know but like again speaking speaking to these characters right like you also have Gaetano showing up giving a very over-the-top performance Mm -hmm. which I think actually gets better and more effective as uh, Gaetano and uh, Schwartzman become allies in in earnest later in the season Uh, but the one the one one performance that definitely felt like it was part of a different show a lot of times was Jesse Buckley oh Uh, yeah as Orietta, like she she was just kind of on one and again like i felt like there there could have been more to this threat like when uh esmeralda like talks to chris rock and like you know gives him the ring and like explains why how she's gonna let her family out of the debts and stuff and it's like huh for some reason this like tying with the threads didn't hit the way it should have for me you know mm-hmm. and again i still really like the season i find it entertaining and like because the writing is almost always really good and uh production design's incredible and you know all that stuff but narratively i felt it was just a little a little messier than i pr- would have preferred um but speaking of the technical stuff and you mentioned with holly being in full command i mean very few showrunners would even attempt something like episode nine, notably in all black and white, kind of an obvious mm-hmm. homage to the Wizard of Oz. I thought that was spectacular. Yep. Yeah. And and then how that lifts, you know, it, it just like Wizard of Oz, just a really well done um, episode and probably the most memorable of the season, in my opinion. Um, but, you know, like uh, we met, we already mentioned this, but the, uh, the killing of Dr. Senator was a very memorable scene for me. One that, you know, compared to other shows that we really liked, probably going to remember that scene stylistically more than a lot of other big moments. So, uh, you know, as we're kind of critiquing it, I do want to just reassert that this is still really good television. It's just yeah, uh, when, when you have a season two of Fargo uh, to compare to, it's like uh, it's, it's a tough curve, so to speak. Um any, any other thoughts on this? You know, I, I guess maybe we already mentioned, what was her name? Uh, Ani and, and Zel- Zelmer. How did you feel about them as characters? I think they were fun, but ultimately didn't feel super consequential. I will say that that shootout scene at the train station 
was great. Part of that yeah. is because uh, Fargo was set in Can Fargo season four is set in Kansas City, but notably was shot in and around Chicago. Meaning Union Station is, of course, the train station from The Untouchables, a very famous yeah. you know, shootout scene. So that was awesome. I really liked that a lot. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I was up and down with them at times. I really liked them at times. I was like. Uh, Again, kind of feeling like they're from a, a different show at, at points for me. Um, and then Zellmere kind of getting the, I don't know, uh, the end of, end of the departed uh, Mark Wahlberg type scene at the end where she gets to kill Chris Rock. Um, you know, just kind of felt like it was out of nowhere, but yeah. probably should have expected that no uh, Rock wasn't going to make it out of this series on, you know, alive. Um, yeah, I think overall, just a lot of. A lot to like and a lot to maybe scratch your head at or or see some of the seams on this season more than you would other seasons. I wonder how much, uh, you know, they, they did wrap this before COVID, but I wonder how much COVID impacted like the production and tying well, up some of those. Well, saying they, they almost wrapped it before COVID. They, they were still finishing the, the last stuff. And again, like if they had wrapped before COVID, I don't think it's 11 episodes. I think it's 10, hmm. meaning more stuff is cut in the edit. Right. So... Holly almost got to just be a little more overly indulgent because he was sitting with what he had shot for months before he finished it in the fall. So, yeah, you know, I mean, I obviously the Fargo franchise, like, I, you know, I think was probably, I think was probably the most common disappointment people had with this was that the show almost tackles race in an interesting way, but it doesn't actually commit to it at all. And part of that's like Esmeralda, like she's not a consistent POV character. She's like a bit absent from 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 uh, whole episodes at times for the most part, and like the whole thing about minorities preying on each other versus going after the system and rival minorities and stuff like it's a through line that falls away and like it's kind of lost by the conclusion of the show. Mm -hmm. And you know, I, I, if Fargo season five, no word on that right now, but you have to imagine Noah's going to do it again at some point just because it seems like he really likes making this show. Mm -hmm. I wonder if he's going to get more ambitious with Fargo or less, you know, because like Fargo season four in a lot of ways is also playing the hits mm -hmm. of past Fargo, you know, so do you, do you think he'd go back? What direction he takes. Do you think he'd go back in uh, to the Mike Milligan story? Jump forward? <sighs> I guess. I don't know. Like, I don't need it to be connected to anything at all, to be honest. I, I mean, I don't either. But, good. I mean, but Bo Keem in that role was also, like, seen stealing. So if we're getting yeah. more Mike Mulligan, uh, I might be okay with that. I don't know. Uh, check out Fargo. Leave, leave us your thoughts. Um, but Dave, how about we jump into some movies now? And uh, why don't we go back to Small Axe? This, this week, we had Lover's Rock, a, uh, a much shorter um, episode of this movie series, whatever you want to define it as. Prime doesn't even know. They say Anthology new film is film out. Series. Yeah, Prime says a new film is out, and then you click on it, it says season one, episode two. So yeah, however you want to you name it, I guess. But, you know, the, I think this was a, uh, a really enjoyable episode for a lot of reasons. A lot of great music, a lot of um, really stunning visual scenes and just like 
vibing moments if, if for lack of a better term yeah. um you know mixed in with some dramatic parts and and some uh you know some story being told but i i really just liked this because it just felt like i was hanging with these people and, and it was it was a fun hang for the most part how did you feel about lover's rock yeah so Lo- lover's rock just off the jump because it's like 70 minutes it and and it's a movie that's very light on plot it definitely feels quite formless and it and it's probably the hardest to classify in like the never-ending debate over is small acts tv or film right so going in you watch it and you're like huh this is this is straight vibes good vibes at that awesome and when it's made by steve mcqueen and friends it looks dope you know um but i act you know the more you think about it uh, I actually really like it as a companion piece to Mangrove because, you know, th- this is the other side of the West Indian immigrant experience in England, right? This is triumphant. This is community. And the while, while uh, blatant systemic racism from white people is at the center of Mangrove and it could not be absent from that story. In Lover's Rock, it's very much in the background, but still there if you think about it. Why are they having this Lover's Rock house party? Well, it's because all the black clubs got shut down and attacked by the government. Mm -hmm. But that's not actually explicitly said, you know? Um, Why does the Rasta guy get let in at the end? Because there's a cop rolling by. They don't want the cop to see any commotion, right? You obviously see the uh, white dudes on the street, like, holler, at some of the girls like, like, like the, 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 the racism stuff is still around but it's really more about the community that the black uh, people have been cultivating in spite of where they're living right and if you don't want to think about it too deeply you can just watch like an amazing needle drop with kung fu fighting you know <laughs> or that uh, acapella scene you know oh there's two of them yeah uh, one with uh, both the men and the women and one with just the men right. there at the end, which is fantastic. Such, such a, a bro vibe. I loved it. <laughs> um, yeah. To me, like just like kind of like the care that goes into the whole show, of course, is very detailed, but like when they're setting up the party and like their guys cutting speaker wire or like later on, you're watching them like mix and they're mixing actual records and like, wow, this is, this is dope. This is really genuine once again. Yeah. You know, when we talked last week, uh, about mangrove we talked about how mcqueen so easily like puts you in a time and place and make you know he adds these little details that impact how you understand what's happening in the story and who the characters are so much and this almost felt like him doing that but just blowing that out to be the whole episode he's just like i just want to i just want to do everything that's kind of in the background of this i want to put you into these people's lives i want to put you into these relationships i want you to see what this like black joy is like you know that that these communities like you said were able to foster in the face of discrimination and hatred and um it's uh it was just a really uh pleasurable watch in so many ways and uh definitely one i would recommend to anybody that's just looking for like a you know, I don't know if I would say a light hang, but something that's that's I say easy to watch while still being really quality and touching on some some deeper topics. It's 
it's a weird lane to be in, but McQueen did it pretty seamlessly here. Um, you know, it, it's it's weird because the characters almost didn't really matter that much to me in, in this episode. But were there any like any moments or any storylines or in, anything that really stood out to you? I guess I'll I'll say first. Um, shout out to uh, Kadar William Sterling. Uh, who plays Clifton he does he has like the weird dancing scene where he gets all yeah. drunk in the middle um he's from sex education and I went when I saw him I was like oh I I, I know this guy where did I know him from and then I, I spotted it but he yeah. I thought he was great for the couple moments he had I actually liked his intro early on where I'm watching his like elaborate technique to rob a payphone I was yep. like wow I've never actually seen that before I didn't know how you rob payphones that's pretty cool <laughs> <laughs> now, now you can go rob pay, payphones all over America Dave you never know. They might have money in them still. <laughs> uh, anyone that stood out to you? Yeah, I mean, again, there's, there's so little plot. I don't even remember the characters' names. It's really just about this, this one night, you know? Um, yeah, this, this, the setup of the party. Again, like cutting the speaker wires, testing this, the sound later on with the DJ with a very authentic patois, you know? Again, it's really about the West Indian immigrant experience more than anything else. And it, it just... It feels so genuine. In this case, that community is triumphant, is joyous, which is a big difference, again, from a lot of how Mangrove goes until the end of Mangrove, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I think it, it's pro- it, it'll probably be one of the most easiest installments of Small Axe to recommend from what I know about the rest of the, the run, you know? Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I think it's... Uh, Again, it, it, it's very unique because of how formless it is. I haven't seen much like this that I can really think of. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Uh, keep watching Mangrove. Uh, keep sticking with it. This is, uh, we, we don't get stuff like this very often on television slash movies. So yeah. this next one we got coming up, Red, White, and Blue, stars John Boyega. John Boyega. So, keep Finn, rolling. One of the, the best Star Wars characters ever written um let's let's move on though to happiest season a hulu movie um Mm -hmm. one of the most watched or the most watched movie this past weekend uh which we'll we'll talk about in a second why that's impressive um (laughs) but you know this was just such a nice little holiday movie really got me in, in the festive spirits um it, it this this really hit the lane of um, touching emotional uh, heaviness to like the perfect amount, while also just sprinkling in like that holiday goofiness, funniness, lightness that I like in, in my holiday movies. And um, surprisingly, or I guess unsurprisingly, if you've been following her career recently, Kristen Stewart really good in this, uh, really solid lead. I mean, playing a a bit of a muted role still. I think that's just kind of Kristen Stewart's acting style, but her and Mackenzie Davis, uh, love them as a couple. Just want to see them doing more couple stuff. Uh, although I hated Mackenzie Davis for quite a bit of this, uh, <laughs> this, uh, film. Dave, I, I don't think you're a big holiday movie guy. Is that right? Yeah. I, especially, you know, like new, new holiday movies. You, you I, hate Christmas, I think, right? Yeah, I'm trying to cancel Christmas just like Thanksgiving. <laughs> my, my normal commie ass. No, um, I, I like classic holiday films. I really don't seek out new ones though. Like, uh, there's Christmas Chronicles. We just talked about Holiday. 
recently. Sure. I, I think I'm going to check it out eventually, just again for <laughs> Emma Roberts. Yeah. And then last year we talked about Last Christmas with Amelia Clark. So like, there's reasons. I'll check them out. Uh, Amelia Clark was the reason at Henry Golding last year. This year it's Kristen Stewart, Mackenzie Davis, Allison Brie, Daniel Levy. A lot of yeah. guys, a lot of parts I like. And Aubrey Plaza. Sure, I'll watch it. And I, I like this because it's not just a Christmas movie; it's a rom com. You know, it, 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 I think that that that's probably why it's even more s- successful. Um, but definitely, definitely a uh, unique surprise. Like it, it wasn't on my radar. I know it was on some people's radars, but I think kind of unsurprisingly, unsur- uh, it became the talk of the holiday weekend film wise. Uh, which is interesting because Hillbilly Elegy was also coming out this week, and I think when Netflix picked the Thanksgiving weekend to drop Hillbilly Elegy as a potential awards movie, they expected it to dominate conversation. But no, Happy Season definitely dominates social media. Can't speak to viewership right now, but I think what's interesting about it is just it's like really tight. It's just really effective. It's consistently funny. There's people you like to look at and act, watch act. And it's tough for me to pick too much many holes in it. I don't think it reinvents the wheel in terms of the rom com experience. It certainly is not super revelatory as like a gay romance story. That I think mm-hmm. the big part of it is about coming out to the family. Like it, it's definitely uh, uh, muted in that regard. But there's just lots of great moments, and you know I think it's kind of scene stealing parts from people like Aubrey Plaza. Yeah, Aubrey Plaza who. I think has been kind of typecast into this like weird girl role and just got to be very normal and enigmatic and charming and uh, captivating. I mean, like there's just something about her face. That I just like want to look at a lot. Um, and she just seems to be doing so much without really doing a lot in this movie. Yeah. It was so funny too. Cause you think about it and like Mackenzie Davis is much taller than Kristen Stewart in the movie's <laughs> yeah trying their hardest to hide that and then you look at Aubrey Plaza who's much closer to uh, Stewart's height and who's also like wearing way better outfits than yep. Mackenzie Davis is it, it, it's just kind of like how the movie's kind of obviously highlighting how one person seems much more desirable than the other but then you get this stereotypical uh, get back together everyone's happy at the end rom-com results and were you disappointed with that? There was a lot of uh, talk about how uh, Stewart should have ended up with Aubrey Plaza and not Mackenzie Davis at the end. Oh, yeah. I mean, she definitely should have ended up with Aubrey Plaza, but uh, it's a Christmas movie, folks. Like, that's not what happens in these movies. So uh, temper your expectations. Um, you know, I, I think the, uh, I, I do think like the reckoning part at the end uh, for Mackenzie Davis and like her coming around felt a bit like, rushed and forced and you know maybe if this was not a christmas movie where everything had to be resolved by the next day so everybody could have a happy christmas uh and have the happiest season um (laughs) maybe they would have explored that more you know maybe uh like a a traditional rom-com that's not around christmas could have explored christmas you were aubrey plaza dating and then coming back to mackenzie davis however that worked out yeah yeah but i i i think like you said, this movie isn't about who ends up with who. It's about those moments in between that really stick out. I, I, I felt like uh, Levy, every time he was on screen, just like 
hilarious. Uh, you know, if you haven't watched Shit's Creek, which I've only seen a couple episodes, uh, it makes you want to just go watch more of him. And uh, it seems like a good, I don't know, uh, commercial almost for that. Um, sure. What else stood out to you, though? I really liked Mary Holland as yeah. Jane. Um, just like co-wrote the movie, too. And, and just like like the sweetness of the movie, right? Like the goodness that yeah. everybody else seemed to lack, which uh, really just a, a great um, juxtaposition to the rest of her family. Who else for you, though? Yeah, Jane definitely gets a lot of good laugh lines. That's awesome. And, and Dan Levy, he gets to, I think, tactfully highlight the conflict that's simmering throughout most of the movie when Stuart's kind of pushed into the closet by her girlfriend and what that's like and how that's actually uh you know not a uncommon experience for a lot of gay people unfortunately so i think that's done well um another scene same moment though is when uh the allison breeze kids basically make stewart get a uh, caught for shoplifting and then tim simon shows up out of nowhere as the mall cop and is going super hardo and it interrogating that that was fun again just simon's probably more or less ad-libbing but you can tell like that's just a great use of him and his you know comedic energy totally totally um yeah i i think there's there's a lot of really really great moments in this and a lot to to like and i i get why people would pick this over the next movie we're about to talk about hillbilly elegy because uh on holiday weekend i think this is much more my speed than than that movie definitely so. definitely uh, I really liked Brie, Allison Brie as Sloane. I think really yeah. effective as that older character, older sister, and, and all the baggage she's carrying into the family. Also, uh, Mary Steenburgen as the mom is great. She gets a ton of great lines. Um, and I've always liked Victor Garber. Um, really only came into him uh, he, as he's older in, in his career, but I liked him as the dad Legally as well. Blonde. Yeah, I, th- I, I know him from him. the Flash more than anything else, really. <laughs> um, yeah, I, uh, I, I think you know. Again, it doesn't reinvent the wheel, but it's doesn't have to. It, it's good at that convention, and that's fine. That's good. Yeah. Also, uh, just quick shout out to Anna Gasteyer. Haven't feel like I haven't seen her in a lot of stuff recently, but um, yeah, she was always funny at SNL, and just seeing her getting a a shot is is nice. So yeah, yeah. shout out to her. Yeah. Um, go ahead. Yeah, I would say after the box office malaise that Kristen Stewart's been in with movies like Underwater and uh, Seaberg recently, I think this is great that she's in something a lot of people are watching and they're liking her role in it. Because so. she's a really good actor. She's just kind of had a bad run of late. I agree. But you know who hasn't had a bad run of late? Amy Adams and Glenn Close. <laughs> I guess maybe if you if you're comparing uh the run to academy award success they haven't had a great run you know glenn close famously uh was just last year with the wife was two two oscars years ago i'm getting all these years confused today uh you know seemed like she had that shit in the bag and uh the bag was not actually uh, (laughs) there for her um which which we were both happy about you know especially uh, who did it go to that year? Olivia Coleman for the favorite. Yes, that's right. And what what a moment! Just like amazing speech, amazing moment. Uh, that's what makes the Oscars great. Um, but you know, you, you get Glenn Close and Amy Adams to headline Hillbilly Elegy, a, a memoir of a of a, a right wing um, uh, ex marine 
a person who grew up in low SES, uh, J.D. Vance, who's portrayed in this film by uh, Gabriel Basso. And you think this, and you get Ron Howard behind mm-hmm. the uh, the camera and it, every every movie uh, predictor for the year said this is a potential uh, Academy yeah. Award favorite in a lot of ways, or has all the makings. Netflix saved it for the fall. You could tell it was part of their award slate this year, no question. But Dave, it was simmering and simmering, and we finally took it off the stove, and we took a sip. And why did this not taste so good to me? Why was this not good? Um, a common comparison a lot of people have made with Hillbilly Allergy would be to the Goldfinch from last mm-hmm. fall. Another famous, popular book, best-selling book, adapted into a film that does not succeed. And people are left scratching their heads about why that was. In Hillbilly Elegy's case, like you said, that J.D. Vance memoir named Hillbilly Elegy came out in 2016. It was a bit of a flashpoint book and was used to highlight the economic plight of a lot of white folks in, in rural poverty, like in the Appalachia region. And you, you know, got used to explain the Trump voter, white Trump voter in 2016, right? And Vance's perspective, more than anything else, was that the needs of these people economically are not being seen and heard, which was true and is largely still true. And it's an important point of view that needs to be talked about. However, Hillbilly Elegy, the film, and, and I think this is really a failing of the script, has no interest in any of the deeper in, 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 in heady stuff that that memoir at least acknowledged and brought to the public view. It's really just a melodrama about this fucked up family. And it's a really conventional telling at that with a lot of narration, get a lot of child acting, and he gets an over-the-top performance from Amy Adams, or okay performance from getting close. Like it, it just doesn't end up being that special of a film at all. And you wouldn't know it was adapted off of a best-selling book. I mean, it's it's funny because uh, when you think about Ron Howard, right? Do do you think guy who is going to uh, take a swing, take a stand, do anything more than really go right down the middle with things? Um, as of late, uh, no. the later, you know, this is his first movie since Solo. He was hired by Lucasfilm. Because he was a safe pick. Let's not forget. <laughs> yep. And I think that's the thing. I mean, even just looking at what he's made this century. I mean, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, Beautiful Mind, Cinderella Man, Da Vinci Code. I mean, Frost Nixon might be the, the closest he's gotten to something political. Sure. And that was that was an interview uh, with an impeached president. Like, I mean, I feel like there's not a lot there that's super controversial. And when you're taking on a a work like Hillbilly Elegy, the the, the book, it's the sort of thing where it's like, if you're not going to go into the political sphere with it, if you're not going to look and try to incorporate that into the movie, which I didn't feel like that was really portrayed in the movie at all, then this just becomes a pretty generic... um, drama and it not one that i found particularly interesting a lot of the time um i i think close and 
Amy Adams are really good. I, I thought uh, Basso was not good. Um, I didn't really find him to be a, a, a very compelling actor. Um, and maybe that's just my read on it and my, my kind of feeling bored with the story. But yeah. this felt like a movie that could have been 20 minutes shorter, um, that could have been uh, told, you know, told for, uh, a lot tighter and a lot more interestingly and really what we got was it felt like the second uh or i guess the the middle act the second act was glenn close just uh throwing empty threats at <laughs> this uh child yeah. the whole time you know it's just like okay right. <laughs> cool we want to see glenn close yell at somebody fine right and i don't even know how much of it's gabriel basso's fault to be honest because the perspective we get for most of adult jd for 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 him the story is just him dealing with a lot of fucked up shit with his with his family True. and like yeah. struggling to 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 juggle that with his burgeoning uh hopeful career you know in, in grad school and it's like yeah i mean i get that struggle but it's also like th- this is a story that i think has to be told a certain way because it's not a fun hang in the slightest bit you know you're talking about poor people that are really struggling with 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 with, with finances and drugs and um you know domestic violence and really everything you think of it's all there and it's like it, it, you have to i think you have to ground the movie in a certain way and i actually don't know if i liked amy adams all that much in this because it felt really over the top and her, her her character is hard to like for her actions obviously but also it's almost hard for oh, it's hard for me to feel sorry for her because of how little she wanted to be helped and how uh, little responsibility she took in uh, her causing a lot of the circumstances that have affected her family and it's like, like i don't know like I, I think the narrative need to be reworked a lot maybe do it more chronological i'm not sure but like the yeah. way it starts where it's like jd narrating about you know back back in the summers i used to love being in uh, uh you know back at my grandma's house in, in the backwoods, yeah. you know? And it's like, yeah, but like the, the way, the way this story goes, it, it doesn't make sense that it's going to be that rip roar and uh, stand by me as narration, you know, like, right. It just it, felt quite messy. You know what? I think they, they did do really well. So I thought they really portrayed the generational trauma that comes about with this. I think, you know, if you've read the book though, and I'm not saying I have, I've, uh, skimmed parts online that I could find. Um, the thing about this is that this story becomes how, you know, the the grandma and the grandpa had a fucked up life and fucked up relationship, and then that caused Amy Adams to, you know, have all these issues in her life, and how that's being passed down. And in reality, um, JD Vance had, I think, either two aunts and an uncle, or two uncles and an aunt, or something like that, who came up then didn't have these drug issues and actually were pretty successful people and yeah um it's it's it could have been a story about like why this one person takes this on and it you know in in reality this is a story about mental health and addiction but i think when uh when the expectation is so high based on who's cast and who's behind uh Mm -hmm. you know the camera and then you get this it's like an okay movie just feels like shit yeah yeah definitely and i i think that's another part too is the book is controversial because of who wrote it, J.D. Vance. As you said, he didn't actually grow up there. He grew up in Ohio. He was down there a few times in the summer. 
So a lot of people don't even think of him as an authentic, quote, hillbilly. You know, right. people from those rural areas, a lot of them didn't like uh, Vance being the messenger at the very least, you know. And yeah. uh, I don't know. I feel like that's really for those people to decide how they want to feel about him more than anything else. But I think you're right. Like when I'm watching and I'm like, it's not like offensively bad at all, but it's really just because it's a thematic failure that it feels so bad. You know, movie making wise, it's 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 good enough. Yeah, I, I almost wonder if this, and not to, not to try to play like uh, you know Monday morning quarterback, but I guess in a sense, it's what I'm gonna do. Um, I almost wonder if this could have been better if it was like a an adaptation instead of being you know the book of this uh, movie of the same name as the book. You know, um, taking some liberties with the story, um, but using that as like the the basis almost to like spruce up some parts or tighten up parts a bit because I do feel like. Um, especially once he goes to grandma's house it's like you we could have made that scene like 10 minutes shorter we could have, and, and then grandma just kind of goes in a montage it's like okay like the right. second most important character in the whole story is just unceremoniously off screen now it's like oh yep. okay uh just just strange overall um and disappointing for sure definitely you know and it would have been funny if this movie yeah i mean remains to be seen it could still get oscar nominated i guess you know amy adams has been nominated six times she and has been nominated for a reason she's great so that'd be awfully funny to me if it was suddenly like uh it's time to award amy adams we can't wait till she's 70 years old like we it, fucked up with glenn close we better do it now well well hellbilly elegy that's the one like you go on letterbox so and everyone's like oscars though imagine if Amy Adams wins a Razzie before an Oscar, though. <laughs> oh, <laughs> kind God. of an unfathomable thing. Yeah, really. I mean, she's she's been kind of the gold standard of just like consistency and ac- uh, of excellence, and uh, I don't know, disappointing for sure. But uh, I, I think I'm I'm good on talking about. It. Any last thoughts? I will say, Fredo Fredo Pinto, uh, pretty thankless part as the girlfriend of JD Vance. Yeah, Always liked her. Though. She has she's not in a lot of a lot of great stuff right lately though but yeah yeah it's uh it, it was kind of funny to uh just kind of peruse the people th- thing about the movie because it's it's definitely garnering strong uh, strong strong, uh response that's for sure uh well dave i think that's gonna do it for us this week what should uh what should the people be watching for next week oh geez coming up it's uh loaded loaded so there's Thank. a lot of stuff a lot of stuff coming out we'll I'll just acknowledge it all. We'll see what we talk about. But yeah, Mank, of course, on Netflix from David Fincher. We will be talking about Mank next Absolutely. week. Absolutely. As well as Sound of Metal on Amazon with Riz Ahmed. Apparently, it's a tour de force for Riz. Hell yeah. Love to see that. We also have the Kate Winslet, Sir Ronan, Portrait of Lady on Fire-esque romance film, Ammonite, uh, coming to VOD. And then two other movies that I actually do plan to check out, one of which is uh, Freaky. That's that Vince Vaughn, Catherine Newton, like, comedy slasher film where they switch bodies. It actually looks pretty good, and the reviews are strong. I'll check that at some point. Um, and then I just heard about this movie, uh, Black Bear, which is a well-regarded Sundance film starring Aubrey Plaza. So I'm going to there we go. check that at some point. And then also music-wise, very notable music week as well. Uh, you have Shawn Mendes, uh, Rico Nasty, 
Young Blood, Savior of Rock, as well as a deluxe edition of Rina Sawayama's uh, Sawayama, the well-regarded album from earlier this year that we neglected to talk about. So I'm happy to get to that finally. Oh, and of course, Small Axe continues, and there's a Euphoria special out on HBO as well. So ton of shit. Uh, yeah, Dave. I don't know if we're gonna get to all of it, but uh, I, I think there's some some highlights there that we'll for sure begin beginning to. And if you want to hear it. Follow us on Twitter at NostalgiaPod, SoundCloud.com slash NostalgiaPod, and give us that follow on YouTube.com slash NostalgiaPod. We'll catch you next week. Mank! Mank.